That story of Solomon and his demonstration of wisdom has always been a favorite of mine. Uh, it just shows how um, necessary the work of God is in our lives. We have uh, a man who called himself a child, a man whose father was the greatest king in Israel's history, and he clearly understood his need for God in his leadership of his people. And uh, what a demonstration of wisdom that was, wasn't it? So we have, we have that uh, story there, and we, I think, all appreciate that kind of a story and uh, enjoy seeing um, God work on behalf of his people through uh, that kind of wisdom. But I want to suggest to you that our need for uh, God's work in us is just as critical as Solomon's need was. We have a, we have a, a expectation before us, whether it's from family or from scripture or from God himself, to live a certain way. And unless God does his work in us, that won't happen. And so we, like Solomon, need to plead with God that he will grant us everything necessary to live the way we should. And this is what this story has described. And in fact, this is what these verses that we're going to be looking at in Psalm 119 discuss. So if you have a Bible, one should open it to Psalm 119. And we're going to look at the next few verses that are under consideration today, particularly 35 and 36. But Psalm 119, just to warm you up to the, the text today, Psalm 119 is really a uh, <clears throat> map of the Christian life. It is a uh, divine GPS, that is God's positioning system helps us uh, as we navigate the Christian life and try to figure out what it is that, that uh, we should be doing, how we ought to be thinking and living and treating one another. Uh, this, this chapter is profound in that regard. Um, if you were interested in how to become holy, for example, which most Christians have at least some interest in, then this chapter is where you'll find that instruction. If you are interested in how to deal with disappointment and hardship, this chapter will help you. If you're interested in how to deal with a stubborn sin, I know that's none of you, but in, in case it were, uh, would you know where to go? Well, Psalm 119 is a good place to start. This psalm is, is full of, of direction and uh, navigational systems for the Christian life. It helps us be what God wants us to be as Christians. The author here got our attention right off the bat by, by telling us that we can find happiness in only one place. And since we're all interested in that, we're all interested in being happy, our, our antennas went up and we wanted to hear what his answer was. And he told us it was in pursuit of holiness. The only place that, that we will find happiness, according to this author, is in the pursuit of holiness. And then he goes on to tell us how we can become holy. He goes on to tell us how is we can, we can walk that path uh, that God has intended us to walk. 
He, he knows that in order for us to be conformed into the image of Christ, we will need to go through God's school of sanctification. And by the way, every Christian is in that school, you included. We are all in God's school or divine education. And this is what the fifth stanza, starting in verse 33, is emphasizing. It's, it's this divine education that we all need and, if we're in Christ, are participating in. Do you see that in your life? Do you see yourself under the instruction of God in the process of becoming Christ-like? This is what the fifth stanza says. It begins by this, teach me, O Lord. Help me understand what you are teaching so that I can, I can be all in and, and give myself passionately to the pursuit of God and holiness. The, the, the author here is, is very interested in the engagement of the affections. We all know what it's like to try to learn something when your affections aren't engaged in that thing. And it is not enjoyable, is it? It is like pulling teeth, as it were. And so if we're going to become like Christ, our souls, our hearts, our passions, our affections must be engaged in the process. And he is teaching us here now how to do that, how to accomplish it. Today we're going to learn more about this divine education from verses 35 and 36. So let me read those for you as we look today into God's word. He says, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. I want to I take three points from these two verses today. I want to show you, first of all, the grace that this man or this author was praying for, then the sin he was praying against, and then the target he was aiming at. The grace he prayed for, the sin he prayed against, and the target he aimed at. These are three important things. And I'm hoping that, that today that you will see the importance of these things, the importance of, of, of understanding these uh, graces that are prayed for, understanding the importance of, of running from particular sin and understanding what it is that's drawing us Christward, the target that we, we should be pursuing. Friends, do you want, I, I, know, I, know you, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it to get your mind working with me. Do you want to have a passionate, affectionate relationship with God so that you actually enjoy your relationship with him? That you that actually look forward to times with him in his word, with his people, uh, so that this time, this hour every week isn't something that is just drug out and uh, relentless and boring and just a bunch of words. We want that, don't we? None of us wants to participate in something fake. And so the, the prayer of the psalmist here addresses that tendency in each of us. The tendency to kind of just um, fade into the fakeness of our relationship with God and keep doing it because everybody around you says it's real. 
We want to avoid that. I want to avoid that at least. And so I'm going to preach to myself today and you can listen if you want. All right? Let's look at the grace prayed for. From these two verses, we can see two critically important requests. Um, Two things that he asks for that we all need in order to live a vibrant, faithful Christian life. Two things that we must have if we're going to become like Christ. If we're going to get out of the fake Christianity. The first is this. The first grace he prays for is this. It's it's right there in verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments. This is the first grace. And and I've just titled it in your notes by, by rewording his prayer. God, make me able. Do you want to have a vibrant relationship with God? Then you will have to be able to do so. And I'm certain, because you're a fallen sinner like me, you can't do it on your own. And so the prayer is simply this, God, make me able. Lead me in this path. And this idea of being led in the path is hooking a lead rope onto a horse's bridle and literally leading them where you want that horse to go. It's not some vague request for some vague direction. It's no, it's God. Hook up the spiritual bridle of my heart and lead me where you need me to be. Because I won't be there otherwise. It's, It's... It's translated much more closely to this idea in the New King James that says it like this. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. Make me walk there. Hook up that lead rope and lead me that direction. I know that you need this. I know that I need this. Because if I'm left to my own devices, I don't go there. I go someplace more comfortable. I go someplace less spiritual. Friends, can you see the massive importance of this plea? If our spiritual lives are completely dependent upon God's gracious work, then what better prayer to pray than this? (laughs) It's just simply a cry from his heart, God, you've got to do it. You must come through. And you'll notice, even up to these verses that we're in today, This is a frequent request of this author. And it's not because he's got nothing else to say and he liked that line and and he's being redundant. It's because the the Christian life uh, is a myriad of experiences. It it is uh, all sorts of challenges and all, all shapes and sizes. And each particular challenge requires uh, God to work in that particular place. And, and so this isn't just redundant requests. It's, it's, a, it's a response to the constant pull from the world from all these different angles that we personally encounter. In verses 33 and 34, the psalmist asks to know and understand God's will because only God is the one who can provide that understanding. Um, this, this request here is also directed to God because he knows that unless God puts us on this path of his commandments, we're never going to walk there. We'll want to go do our own thing. We, we naturally drift in the wrong direction. 
And so this prayer really in verses 35 and 36 is a prayer that, that God would interrupt me, that God would, would change my direction by force if necessary, that he would hook up that spiritual lead rope to the bridle of my heart and draw me Godward. Um, our, our condition is hopeless otherwise. We'll wander. We'll drift. And not only will we drift from God and from his word, but we'll drift from his people. We'll drift from, from all the things that, that God uses to build us up. We'll drift from all those things that God uses to pour joy upon our experience. And so we need this. We need God to do this for us. It's not, not just for this ancient author here. Lead me in the path. It's, it's a request to make me able. And then I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, okay, when does God answer this kind of a prayer? At what point in our experience does God answer this prayer? Make it possible for me, make me able. And I thought, well, the first place is that conversion. Isn't that when God first initiates his work in your heart? God, make me able, and then what happens? God, God is the one who makes that prayer actually possible. He initiates in our relationship with him. He, he draws us to himself, and then we start asking for things like this. God, make me able. And so we see this at conversion. It's a, it's a first work of grace in a converted soul. It's, it's being given the gift of an enlarged heart that was referred to back in verse 32. And so with this new heart comes the, that work of grace, that, that new inclination towards good, towards God, towards godliness. And so we, we have this heart that, that has a new capacity to act in holiness, to, to, to follow in obedience. We have this new heart with a new inclination, a new desire. This is what we see God doing. This is what he's asking for. Make me able. And we know that because of our, our fallen condition in our natural selves, we are weak. This is what Paul told the Romans. He said that Christ died for us when we were weak. But it's, it's even after regeneration that this inherent, inherent spiritual weakness continues. I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I professed faith when I was nine years old, and um, it hasn't been a cakewalk since then. I've had a continual battle and struggle to be Christ-like, to desire what I should be desiring. And so it is, it is even after conversion that we see God answering this prayer to make me able. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with my weakness. And this is, of course, the apostle Paul speaking. He's content in his weakness. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Who, who, whose strength is he talking about? God's strength. God has made him able. Even the apostle evidently struggled with weakness in this department. So verse 35 is a prayer to be made able. And God makes us able at conversion. And then the second request that we see here that I want to point out to you is for God to make us willing. 
It's one thing to be able to do something. It's completely different to be willing to do it, right? We're all able to do the dishes, but being willing to do the dishes is what matters, right? At least that's what my wife tells me. And so we would say that, that God answers these prayers to be made able and willing, not only at conversion, but throughout the sanctifying process. This is an ongoing prayer of our hearts, isn't it? God, make me able to love my neighbor. Make me able to be a good husband or wife. Make me willing to do what you've asked me to do. And we see this, this request and being willing in verse 36. This is what incline my heart means. Make me willing. Incline my heart, he says, to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The, the prayer of verse 36 implies that the natural heart is not inclined towards the things of God. The natural heart isn't willing. Even the converted heart sometimes lacks in a willingness to do what they should. We, even though we've been given this new enlarged heart, we have these old tendencies that we battle, don't we? And so this is the prayer of a converted man um, who needs God's ongoing activity in his life and in his heart. And, and this is why we need this prayer ourselves. Um, if, if this weren't the case, there would be no need for this prayer. If there was a one-time application of the grace of God at the point of conversion and never a need for his renewed grace throughout each and every day, then this prayer wouldn't have been recorded here in this verse. This is, a, this is the prayer of a man seeking God. Thomas Manton, writing on this verse, said this, we can be worldly of ourselves. Can, can I get an amen? All right, we, we don't have to be trained to be worldly. We can do that ourselves. But we cannot be holy of ourselves. They that plead for the power of nature shut out the use of prayer. Do you understand what he's saying? For, it is, for if by nature we could determine ourselves to do that which is good, there would be no need of grace. And if there's no need of grace, there's no need of prayer. And then, of course, Augustine famously said, if we need to confess our weakness rather than defend our strength. This is what we should be doing. We need God. This is, this is a prayer of a needy person, right? Um, and you say, I don't want to be a needy person. Yeah, you do. Otherwise, you live your life as an inept believer, if a believer. So he says, incline my heart. He says, lead me in the path. Make me willing. Make me able. I want, to, I want to become more like Christ. Incline my heart. You know, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to build a wisteria canopy in my backyard. I've got this great picture in my head of what it's going to look like one day. I've got four wisteria plants growing up, four different trellises, and they're going to meet in the middle and cover our backyard. And one day, hopefully before I die, I will be able to sit underneath that and enjoy it. Um, there's one problem, though. 
it doesn't happen by itself. You know what? I've had more trouble getting these wisteria to obey me. They have a trestle. They have everything they need for life and godliness, and they continue to go their own way. You know, I, I'm out there. You can take this up with Sherry. She knows my, my OCD-ness with this. I'm out there two or three times a day tying these little vines down because if I don't, just out they go the wrong direction. And sometimes I get out there and before I know it, I've got this three foot long vine and where'd that come from? And I got to clip that thing off. It, it really, even though I've put everything it, it needs there, I water it, I fertilize it, I got the trellis, unless I'm on it all the time, it misbehaves. And I thought, this is a mirror. I am looking not at a wisteria plant, I am looking at a mirror. This is me. Unless God is continually on me, pruning here, tying down there, I am off looking at something else, off doing things, you know, putting my energy where it shouldn't be, heading in the wrong direction. Um, I, I just thought, this is exactly what's being taught here by this author. God, make me willing, make me walk in this path. Make me climb this trellis. And so I, I need to work with my wisteria um, to incline those vines to a certain direction in order for us to grow in grace, become more like Jesus. We need to be trained by the master gardener. And, and if you think just a little bit, if you're a Christian, if you think just a little bit, you can, you can see this in your own life, can't you? Um, he's inclining our hearts Godward. He, he's, he's training us to his trellis of godliness, conforming us to the image of Christ. And I, I think this is exactly why this psalmist is praying this. It's exactly why this stanza is included in this psalm. It's exactly why this psalm is included in this Bible is because every Christian who has ever experienced a dark inclination of their heart knows exactly the need that they have for God's work in their lives. This is a map for the Christian. This is what God does. He, he's inclining our hearts. He's giving us a willing spirit. He's giving us a capacity to follow him. And he's doing all of this for our joy. God wants you and me to be joyful people. Jesus just came right out and said it. I'm doing this for their joy, that my joy would be in them. Uh, the, the master gardener is a happy gardener. And he wants us to be happy people. Um, and, and the only way that a, a wrong-leaning wisteria can be, can be brought back in the right direction, the only way to have a wrong-leaning heart to be brought back in the right direction is to bend it in the opposite direction and then tie it down so it'll stay over there. And how does God do this? He does this through his word. That's why he's asking here in verse 33, teach me. 
He does this through enlightening the understanding, verse 34, so that we'll, we'll join him passionately with all of our heart. He, he does this by giving us uh, an experience of joy when we walk faithfully with him. He, he blesses us with joy and contentment. See, he's, he's, he's taking that wayward vine and pulling it back his direction and tying it in the direction he would have us go. And so God inclines our hearts. He's praying for an inclined heart. He, God inclines our hearts by applying the word of God to our minds in such a way that it affects our will. And, and, and it grows our affection and passion for obedience. Until sooner or later, we'll, we'll kind of be used to this direction. I told Sherry yesterday, I, I think I've got that vine convinced. I think it's going to stay on that trellis. You know, I, I, I worked with it, worked with it, worked with it, and now it's out there about a foot and a half, two feet, and it's actually starting to wind down this trellis that I made for it. And I'm going, why was that so hard for you? It was simple. Just, and it's the same with me. And you know, to continue with the illustration, believe it or not, I'm actually gentle with these wisteria. I, I tie them down with uh, yarn kind of like stuff because it's soft and, and it's not gonna damage the vine. Um, and, and I do this and I, and I make sure I don't just rip it over there because it'll break the vine. And so I gently pull it over and then tie it down with this yarn and it, and it seems to be working. And my point is this, is that God works with us very gently also. He's a good gardener. He knows what he's doing. He's wise, he's compassionate, he's patient, he's loving. And he actually works with us so much better than I work with my mysteria. It's, it's, he's, he's a loving God. He, he describes the way he works with us in many places in the Bible, but one place it's, it, he was talking through the prophet Hosea on how he deals with his people. And this is what he said to Hosea about his relationship with Israel. I led them with cords of kindness, excuse me, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. This is how God usually comes to us, wayward vines. He comes gently, patiently, in love and kindness, and eases our yoke and feeds us. And other times, I think because of the hardness of our hearts or heads, uh, his tactics aren't as gentle. And I think many of us have experienced both of these things, haven't we, in the Christian life? And the beauty of this is that since we have a trustworthy God who's loving and patient and kind and knows us completely, he does exactly what you need and he does exactly what I need. Not any more and not any less. Which is why your training from the master gardener will look different than my training with the master gardener. That's why you go through things differently than I go through things. That's why your trials seem 
differently to you than mine do to me. Because God knows exactly what I need and he knows exactly what you need. And he does this because he loves us. He wants us to, to experience his fullness of joy. And so Jesus is a, f- a lover of your soul. He is a friend of sinners who has a heart for you because you're a sinner and he is your creator. Um, his goal is to incline our hearts to his testimonies. He, he doesn't want you to have to pretend Christianity. He wants you to actually enjoy it and enjoy him. Um, l- listen to what the, the psalmist said in Psalm 141. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in the company with men who work iniquity. Let me not eat of their delicacies. That, that, that's the wrong trellis. You know, incline me to this trellis. So Psalm 136 presents us with a prayer, a plea, really, for, for God's gracious and loving and patient activity in our lives. Make me able, God, make me willing. And we know God well enough to know that he'll do this in the best possible way. Have you thought about your life at all in the past 15 or 20 minutes and how God's working in it? Have you thought about the circumstances you're in? Um, have you thought about what you're going to be facing? You see it coming on the horizon and maybe you're a little concerned about it. What's God up to? He has one objective for you. He has, he has the same objective for me as he does for you. And he's going to accomplish his objective in the best possible way. So as we think about this, so there's, there's one more thing that I, that I want you to, to consider as it relates to uh, this particular point. Um, verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain, uh, um, brings something into play that I think you should consider. And that is that there is a possibility that God, by his intentional, act, his intentional inactivity, allows you to fall into sin and spiritual drift. And you say, how can that be loving? Well, um, when you go some time without food, what happens? You make your way to the refrigerator, right? You figure it out. You get there. Uh, it's even more um, obvious when you lack oxygen. I remember, you know, goofing off when I was a kid and being too far down under the surface of the water and, you know, getting to the top as quickly as I could because that's where the air was. It's the same way in our relationship with God. Sometimes God allows you to have seasons of uh, dullness. Can I say it that way in the Christian life? Seasons of disinterestedness uh, that are ordained by him to cause you to find your way to the refrigerator, to cause you to develop more passion, uh, more affection for the things of God. Sooner or later, friends, listen to me, you will get tired of pretending. And, and you will come to the surface as quickly as possible 
for error. God actually does this. He uses these, these seasons of, of separation, if you will, to draw a believer into a yearning, passionate, affectionate relationship with God. And, and a lot of times, you know, you can, I wish, I wish, I do this because I'm a pastor and I know it's probably odd, but I, I watch you and I watch myself worship. And I'm going, God, please move. Please move, make me able and willing. Make that individual able and willing. Draw them with the cords of kindness and love. But um, it's, it's uncomfortable thinking that God might allow us to, to flounder um, because we're, we're so used to raising our own kids, right? And when they floundered, what did we do? <laughs> we did everything we could to alleviate the floundering. And yet we parent out of uh, lack of wisdom. We, we parent uh, in, with designs of comfort. God parents with the designs for conformity to the image of Christ. God parents with a design to bring you ultimate, lasting, and true joy. So God, God creates an environment, allows an environment that, that uh, elicits a reaction because participating in the um, process of sanctification is required for Christians. We can't just let go and let God, like some people would like to think. We actually have to participate. We have to obey. We have to be involved in the family of God. We have to open our Bibles. We have to cooperate. And so the, the reason that the author prays for a willingness and an ability to obey God and to pursue holiness because he knows that he is responsible himself to make an effort. And unless God grants him that willingness, God grants him that ability, he will never participate. But, but God expects you to exercise and participate in sanctification. And you can see this in a few different places, but I've just chosen this one in um, Paul's letter to Timothy, his disciple. And he said this to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. He's telling Timothy to be busy, to get after it, to participate. If Timothy wasn't responsible to fan into flame his gifts. If God was just going to do it all, whether or not Timothy even winked, why tell Timothy that? He could have just said, well, Timothy, you know what? This is going to happen one way or another. <laughs> you might as well join in. No, he said, Timothy, get up, fan into flame the gift that you've been given. Work at it. So don't sit there, Timothy, and pout about your lack of growth or the, at least the observation of it. Why aren't I growing? How come I don't see more progress in my Christian life? Well, what are you doing about it? Letting go and letting God? That doesn't work. 
So we must participate in, in, and even our participation, of course, willingly done is a gift from God, right? This is not something that we muster up, even though there is, there is some mystery in all of this relationship. It is dependent upon God's initiation, hence the prayer, make me able, make me willing, and then I'll participate. Give me an enlarged heart, and then I'll run in that way, is the idea. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul made it obvious why he wanted to be in ministry. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm an apostle by the grace of God. I'm able to preach by the grace of God. I'm able to love one another. I'm able to write by the grace of God. So, so Paul was not passive in his sanctifying process. He was active. If anybody was active in his growth in Christ, it's him. And he says right here, it's because of God's grace that I'm interested in the things of God. Back to the prayer. God, make me able. Make me willing. And you know what's crazy? If you're interested in saying that prayer, it's because God's made you interested in saying that prayer. Now let's look at the sin prayed against. So we've seen the grace that he prayed for. Grace to be able and grace to be willing. Now let's look at the, the sin that he prays against in verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. So the second clause there, verse 36, the author is pointing out the primary hindrance to sanctification. You want to know what's getting in the way of your growth in Christ? Your interest in selfish gain. You want to know why that, that you're having difficulty seeing Christ's likeness in the mirror? It's because you are more interested in personal comfort than in growing like Christ. That's what he's saying here. And the idea of selfish gain here in the original language is really a figure of speech uh, that's called the synecdoche, that's really a part representing the whole. So selfish gain is really a part representing the whole of our problems. If I were to tell you I saw 10 sails at the lake yesterday, you would know that I was talking, I, I saw 10 boats. The sail represents the boat. Selfish gain represents our, the reason we struggle in sanctification. That, that's what it's called. It's a title of our struggle. The reason the author uses this particular title, selfish gain, instead of some other vice, is because it clearly identifies self-love. Um, and, and not just self-love, but um, love for the world that makes myself feel better about myself. And this particular vice is what is um, especially hard on spiritual growth. It, it directly infects our affections towards God. 
Selfish gain is the exact opposite of holiness, exact opposite of godliness. Selfishness is the reason for relational dysfunction. You got trouble in your marriage? I'll tell you why. Selfishness. Um, abuse, lying, addictions, gossip, greed. Trace it all back. Where is it found? The seed is selfishness. That's where it comes from. And so the author here says, um, incline my heart to the things of God, not to this root that's causing me all sorts of problems in my life. So to, to clarify it more for you, selfish gain is an unsatisfied desire to have more. It's a complacency and a delight in worldly things versus the things of God, like we read this morning in our conf that Dennis read to us from Colossians 3. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now, that doesn't mean you can't think about baseball. It means baseball can't be your God. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy human relationships. It's that you can't bow down at that altar. Set your things on Christ. See, baseball and family are gifts from God that are meant to be enjoyed. Maybe not baseball so much, but let's say soccer. Soccer. Right, Kevin? Soccer and family. <laughs> oh, I love baseball, actually. But um, these are gifts from God. And so Paul in Colossians that we heard this morning is not saying, hey, you know, you're not to enjoy the outdoors. You know, don't, no, no, he's not saying that. He's saying, don't let these things rule your passions and affections. Use these things, enjoy these things from God, all of these good gifts from God, and, have, and, and allow those things, those gifts, to draw you closer to your Savior. Instead of being so consumed with your children that you coldly lose sight of the one who gave you your children. It's like, it's like uh, let's say, and I've used this before, so forgive me if you, you've heard it recently. If I have a picture of Sherry, and I, I'm really proud of this picture because it represents the woman whom I, who I love, and, and then Sherry comes up and says, hey, John, you want to you wanna go out to dinner? No, I'm, I'm spending time with the picture. I, I, excuse me, Sherry. Uh, this, have you seen this picture, by the way, Sherry? No, that's as, that's as ridiculous as being consumed with the gifts that God has given you, your family, your, your, your sports, your health, your outdoors. Instead of, instead of being drawn to the giver of those gifts. Unfortunately, our, our default position... <laughs> is the thing that draws us away from this enjoyment. The things that causes us to, to uh, turn in on ourselves and, and to be consumed with the mundane and miss the joy and fulfillment that comes from the creator of these things. God, God wants to abundantly bless with all sorts of goodness joy, fulfillment, satisfaction. Um, and when we um, lose sight 
of him. When we go off on our own tangent as a wild wisteria vine, when our hearts are inclined to the things of this world as though those are most important, then we, we miss out on all the things that God has for us. And this is where we come to our final point, the target aimed at. So the grace prayed for is that he would make us able and willing. The sin prayed against is selfishness that keeps us from enjoying what God has designed. And the target aimed at is found in the second half of verse 35. The verse says, lead me in the path of your, test, of your commandments, rather, for I delight in it. Now, is it a reference to commandments or path? If you were gonna do a little study here, what would you say? It's gotta be path. Right? Commandments is plural, path is singular, and it is singular, not them. So the reference is to the path, not to the commandments. So the, the, the idea that I'm trying to get at here is that the target is not in the detail of obedience to a bunch of commands. Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. It is, it is fellowship with the Creator. It's, it's communion with the God who loves us and saved us by dying for our sins. It's, it's, that is the aim, the target. And, and the, the, the way to that target is through joy and delight. I don't know, um, sorry for all the illustrations today, but I'm trying to explain this to you as best I can. And this one just came to mind and it might work for you golfers. When you're on the putting green and you got the hole about you know, 25 feet away, maybe this is why I'm a bad golfer, but I don't look at the hole and try to knock into the hole. I, I say, okay, I line it up and there's that blade of grass there. If it goes over that blade, it's gonna be on its way to the hole. So I aim to knock it over something that I can see close and think in the hole it goes. And so this is kind of like joy. God establishes a, a, a target of joy, an aim of joy to get you to him. Does that make sense to you? So we, we're, 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 not, we're not trying to, I mean, we are trying to pursue God, but there's a means to pursuing God. There's a path. And he has given it to us clearly. And I've been talking to you about it for 15 years. This is, this is what God's up to. Revealing himself to us so that we can delight in it. Delight in that communion with God. Not in keeping a list of do's and don'ts. God has created us, friends, to enjoy him and to enjoy uh, life and, and see, see him as the, the ultimate source of joy and, and happiness. In your presence are pleasures forevermore. So this is, 
this is what these verses are describing. And so I'm, I, I, uh, I, n- I never know if I'm fully communicating uh, what I want to communicate, but the idea here is that God desires to bless us with joy and happiness, to, to be in fellowship with him is the only place to find that joy and happiness, and, and he is the one that provides the means to that. So we, we plead, we plead that he would make us able to walk that path. We plead that he would make us willing to walk that path. And lo and behold, he's up to it. He's doing it. Um, the fact that you're here hearing this is evidence that God's at work. So let's continue to trust him in these things. Let's continue to pursue communion with our loving creator and, and embrace the, the, the gardener, as it were, in all that he's doing to make us able and willing to do these things. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we are in great need of you. Um, Our life and breath is dependent upon your activity in our hearts and lives. We pray that you would continue to um, guide and direct us to, to uh, train us on the trellis of godliness, to prune all those things that might distract us. God, help us to be um, what you'd have us be, Make us able to walk this path, giving, a, giving us a willing heart. We do not want to pretend in the Christian life. We do not want to play church or, or play Christianity. We, want, we really truly want to love being in your presence and enjoy hearing from you through uh, the teaching and preaching and reading of your word. God, make this real and true for us. And we desperately need this. We desperately need you. In Jesus' name, amen.